Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Sometimes it's difficult as an African with my thick Liberian accent to get some words outright. I was in France a year ago at the um, E-A-I-E, and oh my God, it was so difficult to say E-A-I-E. I kept struggling and struggling. But I'm glad to be here. It's warm, reminds me of Africa, and I always come with bright color clothes to bring some of the sunshine from Africa. So I'm very happy to be here. I bring you greetings, warm greetings from Accra, Ghana, where I have, I say it's my official address. I spend less time in, from Liberia and other parts of West Africa that is taking a lot of my time. Um, I've been told that I'm supposed to give a talk. And when you do the work that I do, you're never short of a talk. You always have something to talk about, whether it's something crazy that happened on a flight or something crazy that happened in your own life with six children or something very dramatic in the work that you do. And I hope that um, after the little talk I will give, we can have some engagements, um, questions, and I tell people, ask me anything, including my love life. (laughs) Um, Today I've come to share with you, and this is something that has been inspired by our um, conversation earlier on today. And I thought, let me share some examples of locals making change in their situation. And I called it, I've titled it, Building Global Peace Using Local Knowledge. Building Global Peace Using Local Knowledge. In 2003, in the thick of our protest, Someone came from the U.S. and brought me a book that had been written by Hillary Clinton, and the book was her memoir. Every day as I read that book, after protest, I would read a portion of the book and go to sleep. There was one one page of that book and a verse or some writings in there that leapt off the page and straight into my face. And that was a quote by the African-American freedom fighter, Harriet Tutman. And in that quote, she said, if you are hungry, keep walking. If you are thirsty, keep walking. If you want a taste of freedom, keep walking. And this was in reference to her movement for Um, getting people free from the slave trade. Since the end of the Cold War, what we've seen is an increase in conflicts, internal conflicts from Europe and it later descended in the early 90s to Africa, from Rwanda to Burundi, Congo to Uganda, Angola, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea Conakry, You name it, all of these countries have had their birch with some savor uprising, some mild, some very violent, but we've had our brush in Africa. These conflicts have taken the tolls on lives of women and children, boys and girls, men and women, 
communities have been destroyed, infrastructures destroyed, and it's going to take over 20, 30 years to rebuild some of these communities to what they were supposed to be. Global citizens and prominent international people have tried in their own ways to build peace and bring some sense of semblance to some of these countries that have gone through war. And in all of their good intentions, one of the things that we've seen is that they have a particular strategy and tactic in dealing with these very different conflicts. And the strategies and tactics that they've employed from Bosnia to Liberia to Burundi to Rwanda is peace talks, ceasefire, peace agreements, truth and reconciliation commissions, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration of fighters, elections, phase out. So that's the strategy, that's the solution, that is the recipe that we've seen being employed by our international partners, global citizens, to bring these countries back to normal. So if you want to call it the dose of injection for health and life and revival for all of these communities, this is what they do. Go to peace talks, sign a ceasefire, sign a peace agreement, do disarmament, truth and reconciliation commission. Some people must say the truth and all of these different things. Emphasis on communities' involvement is predominantly well-featured in all of these documents. Proper implementation and the involvement of community is hardly seen. Kindly permit me to share some of the examples of my work and the work of my sisters in the region and how people have been using some of the local knowledge to get some of the successes that they've gotten in their communities. Mind you, whilst I'm critical of some of the strategies and tactics of the international partners, I'm also very grateful for their intervention. And I don't want to sound like an ingrate because my mother always say, an ungrateful person will never see heaven, and I really want to see heaven. <laughs> Liberia had been at war from 1989, December 24th, up until 2003. So all of my growing up years, from 17 up until I was having children, everything I knew was war. When I started having children, everything my children knew was war. There had been different forms of intervention, different meetings. Liberia is one of the countries on records for signing over a dozen peace agreements. And every time these peace agreements were signed, someone came back and said, you know what, I didn't use my real signature. They actually did it. Or I wasn't in the right frame of mind. Or I was under pressure. So from Akosomo to Accra to Abuja, we signed agreements upon agreements upon agreements, and still peace did not come. People went to peace talks, and they talked and talked and talked, and we still did not find peace. In 2003, fed up with war and a lot of pressure from different parts of the world, a group of us Liberian women are called us ordinary women who had nothing to lose because we'd lost everything. Our bodies had been broken. 
Some of us have been raped several times. We've been battered and beaten. Our children had died before our eyes. We went through hunger with them walking hours during pregnancy. The experience of the Liberian women is the experience of the women in Rwanda, Burundi. So it's the African story of torture, war, pains, and suffering. We decided we were going to rise up and do something to change our lot. We got together and formed ourselves into a group called the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace Campaign. We protested daily. I have a sister who tells me every time, a friend, a friend, sister who tells me, every time she saw us coming down the road, she said, wow, those women have swallowed the madness pill today. We were mad for peace. We were upset for peace, but we were determined to change the lot of our country. We managed to extract a promise from Taylor. We managed to extract a promise from the warlords. We went to peace talks. We did all of the protests. And in August of 2003, a peace talk, a peace agreement was signed. We went to those who were responsible for the entire signing and everything of the peace agreement asked them, how do we know when this agreement is being implemented and that it's successful? Is it not possible for you to set benchmarks? They look at us like we were mad. Benchmarks? Where? So we took the documents and had a conversation amongst ourselves that one of the ways women never follow through after they've really protested and advocated for peace is by looking through the document to actually know what is enshrined in that document. And we were determined to make a difference. We took the peace agreement back to Liberia, invited 80 community women leaders, sat down, and one by one, page by page, we read that document, we set benchmarks, and by the time we were finished, the benchmarks that we set on the peace agreement was our peace agreement. We took the document, gave it to those community leaders and said to them, from December to April, they should be taking guns from the boys in your community. If you don't see it happening, protest. From May to this month, they should be doing this. If you don't see it happening, protest. From this month to this month, so all of those women left Monrovia, going back to their different communities with their own form of peace agreement, our community peace agreement. Prior to the disarmament of the fighters in 2003, we realized that there were serious mistakes being made. First and foremost, the UN was doing awareness and sensitization of fighters that it was about time for them to give up their guns. And as they went about giving out, doing the awareness and sensitization, it was really strange what we were observing. People took leaflets, got in helicopters, <coughs> and dropped them in communities that people could not read. So these local people see this white paper falling, and they are taking it and either pasting it on their houses or wondering what the heck this is. We went and called some of the key UN people and said to them, this is not how to do sensitization. We want to get involved. We don't want you to pay us. 
We will do it for free, but we feel that if we're not involved and this thing break out again, you all will get into the airplanes and the jet bombers and whatever and leave us here. No one paid attention. As a matter of fact, the head of the UN mission then said to us, I've brought in experts from Kosovo and Bosnia, and they are going to help us do this work. We sat back and watched. December 2003, there was supposed to be a symbolic disarmament of fighters. So they needed only 300 fighters to go to the cantonment site, lay down their weapons, and that would have kicked off the process. 3,000 fighters showed up. They had no idea on how to curtail the situation. By 2 p.m., we had escorted 80 young men from a community. Their mothers asked us to escort them to turn in their weapons. We got there, stood by, and the experts from Kosovo and Bosnia was in action. What we observed was appalling. One of the little boys came with his gun to a table, and this woman asked him, what is your name? He went through all of that. Where did you fight? He, what, which group did you fight with? He said, Lord, one of the rebels group. Where did you fight? He said, Southeast. She processed him. We stood there and allowed her to process him. And then we grabbed him at the end of the line and brought him back to her. And said, you process this boy? She said, yes. Ask him, where did you fight? He said, I fought in Southeast. Which warring group lured? And she said, yes, I processed him. First thing first, ma'am, madam expert, Lord was never in the southeast. Lord was in the north. You, where did you fight? I didn't fight. So how are you here? My brother gave me this weapon to turn in because we'll benefit from 300 U.S. dollars. So by the time the U.N. had processed the boys, the numbers of child soldiers went from 30,000 to 90,000. We stayed in that cantonment site by 6 o'clock. The over 3,000 fighters that had not been disarmed or processed got disenchanted. Fighting erupted again. The 80 young men we took to be disarmed came and rescued us out of the chaos. We went to Monrovia, issued a press release, did local messages in our vernacular calling for calm. The next morning, we went to the UN offices, accompanied by all of the generals from Taylor's army. By the time we got there, we were standing outside, and one of the generals, and if I destroy this, Mark, don't invite me to your university again. <laughs> one of the generals said, to us, stay by us. But as we were standing, and this is how dangerous it was, pop, pop, we were dodging bullets. And every time they went pop, I went like this, and then one of the generals looked at me and said, Lima, when you hear the sound, the bullet just passed. <laughs> so if you don't hear it, it has entered your body. So every time we heard pop, we say, I'm alive, pop, I'm alive. 
We stood there waiting for the UN to come and meet these guys. They came out finally and said to them, come in, but the women will not come with you. What they did not know was that across the street was a group of fighters who had threatened to kill their generals and they will only not kill them if we continue with them through the meetings. So these fighters were the ones across the street shooting and the generals were with us. So we were the shield between the generals and the fighters. And by the time the UN said, you can't come in, the general said, we are not coming in. Because the boys were saying they would go in and negotiate for themselves and never seek our interest. So they, they said, okay, come in. So as we sat in that meeting, the, the UN would say, this is our position. And then we, the women, would write the fighter's position and slip it to the generals. And they would speak and say, this is our position. By the time evening came, the head of the UN mission in Liberia said, the Liberian women knows everything. Let them do this work. We went out in the streets, went out back into the cantonment site, and for five days, we worked with the boys. The fighting ceased. Five days. We went back to the UN and said, now you gave us the contract, and this time, not for free. To go into our communities and explain the process of this army, the boys. So what we did, we took women from every county in Liberia, and they went, and that's how the process went the way it went. We passed the hurdle of disarmament, and we got to the hurdle of elections and voters' registration. But as we were pro pro progressing from disarmament, to voters' registration, we got into a situation where the women had gone into one community and had encouraged the boys to disarm. Their payment, each child or each fighter was getting $300 for every weapon they turned in. 300 United States dollars. In this community, this group of fighters, payment had not been processed. They kidnapped two of the women or seized two of the women and told the leader of the group, if you don't go to Monrovia and bring our money, 24 hours will kill these two women. They came down to us and said to us, two of our women, so we said, let's go to the transitional president. We went to meet with the transitional president. He came out of his office very upset. Lima, you are not president of this country. I am fed up with you just barging into my office. And he went on ranting. I said to him, Chairman Bryant, we have a situation where two of our women, but even before then, there was a riot in Monrovia that we had calmed the day. So we had some of the fighters with us. And we said, we just got information that the boys have not been paid, and it's because of that that you're having riots all over the country. He said, it's not possible. The UN, the US government, and the EU assured me that payment started three days ago. I said, sir, I have information that payment has not been, shut up! What do you know? Payment has not been done. He said, get me the U.S. ambassador online. The U.S. ambassador came. The EU ambassador came. The head of the U.N. came. And we were sitting in the room with very powerful international players. 
And then the chairman of the transitional government said to me, Lema, read the letter that you got from that community because the fighters had sent a letter. I read the letter, and then he turned to them and said, and I'm telling Miss Bowie, she's a liar. Those boys, or wherever they got this letter from, is a lie because the fighters are being paid as I speak, and they started three days ago. White men started turning pink in the room. Everyone was looking at each other and shifting in their seats. And someone said, sir, in all honesty, we haven't paid a dime. And then he looked at them and said, but I got a rating report that the money has been paid or is being paid. Yes, but we have some issues. And in 20 seconds, all of the F world in this world was flying out amongst those men. Everyone was abusing each other. And we sat there amazed. These are the people who hold the peace and the future of our country in their hands. I left that meeting determined and went back to the women and said, you know what? We have to constructively interfere in everything. Because if we don't, we will be refugees again. So 2005, voters' registration, so we continue to interfere. We got to a place where we realized that there were 10 communities with predominantly women who were not going to register and get involved in the electoral process. The Carter, the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute, and the UN had a conference and they've invited me to deliver a paper on the prospects of women's voters. And I sounded a warning that we needed to do specific activities to engage women to register and vote. That whilst women had been involved in peace building, they had never been involved in politics, and they didn't think it was important for them to exercise their rights to vote because it was a man's thing. And the meeting ended, and no one called us. We left. Five days to the end of voters' registration, frantically, the UN called. We want you to come to a meeting. We've identified 10 communities that women are not registering to vote. It sounded like an echo in my ears because they were telling me something I had told them a few days earlier. And then they said, can you do something? We put out 250 women. 20 per community, and we were five, um, five in the office sitting there monitoring. The way the process went, women went to these communities and checked people, Tom, have you registered? No. Why? I don't have anyone to take care of my baby. They took the babies, put it on their backs, and followed the mothers. Have you registered? No. I don't have anyone to care for my market. They sat behind the market stall. Women went to register. Have you registered? No, I don't have anyone to wash my husband's clothes. Bring the clothes outside. Go and register. In, in five days, we registered 7,455 women with that community activity. In some of the communities we went to, we were working with the Elections Commission and saying to them, ink is finished in this place. 
By the time we did voters registration, elections were over. The Elections Commission certificated us as one of the groups in Liberia that made elections successful. We fast forward to 2008, I mean 2007 to 2010. Numerous challenges, many, many challenges. A major one, our young women, rape and abuse has taken over our country. We've, out, we've gotten out there from one community to the other, encouraging parents never to take rape as a family matter because that's the culture. Let's take rape and let's talk it the family way. But even as we've done this constructive interference, we've stepped out of our boundaries and have interfered in two of our neighboring countries. In 2007, Sierra Leone was going to elections like next year, and already you see signs of violence. We got word that the Sierra Leonean people were attacking each other based on party colors. So if you wore red and went to the green neighborhood, you could get killed. We mobilized 25 Liberian women to something we call the Liberian Peace Train to Sierra Leone. And in five days, we visited every region of Sierra Leone, speaking out, having meetings with political leaders, meeting with young men, former combatants. At the end of the Sierra Leone elections, the president went back and credited the Liberian women's involvement to a peaceful elections as one of the key ingredients that they saw. 2011, March, Ivorian women go to protest the walls in Ivory Coast and seven get gone down. I'm sitting in my office and someone say to me, wow, this is what has happened in the Ivory Coast. I write a paper, put it on the Daily Beast website and it's all over the place. And then we start getting calls from Liberia and other places, what are we doing, what are we doing? We heard that our leaders of West Africa were meeting in Nigeria. And so we decided we would do something called a thousand women protest for Cote d'Ivoire. We left Accra, flew to Nigeria with no idea of what we were doing. Our budget was $40,000 to fly women from every country in West Africa. We got to Abuja we were able to fly the women in by magic, emails, and telephone calls to people who cared about peace. We got to Abuja, checked into a hotel, and told the hotel manager, we'll pay you. We're not sure if it's in a week, but we show that we'll pay you. And he said, no problem. We managed to mobilize over 1,000 Nigerian women. And then we had a hurdle. We got to the Economic Community of West African State Secretariat, and the one who was told to work with us said, Lima, you know what? Never in the history of ECOWAS have anyone spoken at the opening of the heads of state summits besides the heads of state. So what you people want is something that is impossible. And he's French. So he went on to say, ce n'est pas possible. 
Yes, you, 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 you people, you just want to come and cause chaos. Because there is no way that they will allow you to speak. I say we will speak. What we were requesting was five minutes at the opening of the Heads of State Summit for the Avoran women to ask our West African leaders to make a definite decision on the political crisis in the Ivory Coast. Because at that moment, they were all divided based on political alliances. And we needed for them to make a definite statement. So all we got was, it's not going to be possible. Early morning of the summit, I'm dressed in my wrapper, T-shirt with Liberian flag on it. So every country had their country flag on their T-shirts. And I'm out looking for President Sirleaf. If anything, that's our only ally amongst the 16 presidents of our region. Sugar Scopa, who's my mentor, and I are walking going. And then we see these three men, who is the leader of the Women, Peace, and Security Network Africa. We are from Nigeria's Secret Service. I said, really? Um, this old lady is... And Sugar is looking at me like, what? <laughs> I couldn't afford to be arrested, pardon me, but I had to tell that lie because I was on a mission. And then he turned to her and said, ma'am, follow me. I had a female journalist with me, and when I turned to look at this girl, she was like, this woman is evil. <laughs> and then I tap her and say, evil, let's go. We need to find the president. But I think she was walking in trance because she was like, Okay, maybe I will be next. (laughs) After a while, I tried calling Sugar's cell phone and I couldn't get her. And then I panicked. What if, what if, what if? Finally, Sugar's called me. And I said, Sugar's, where are you? Come on the 11th floor. I said, where are you? Come. So I go on the 11th floor. And as we walk through... Someone points me to a door, and there is Sugars on the breakfast table with the president of Liberia. Don't ask me how it happened. Because when I said, Sugars, how did you get here? Sit, sit down, shut up, and tell the president what you got to tell her. <laughs> I sat down and said, Madam President, we need you to kindly give us one minute for the women of Ivory Coast to speak. She said, one minute is nothing. And then she turned to her foreign minister and said, who are my allies? And they said, the president of Senegal, President Ward, the president of Sierra Leone, and the president of Nigeria. You can depend on these three when it comes to women's issues. She said, get them on the phone. And in five seconds, we had five minutes. Send zip became possible. Then they said to us, there is no way the Nigerian government is going to give you permit to protest, given the rising wave of bombings on the street. Not only did they give us the permit, they sent military men to guide us as we protested. Why am I making these examples? 
I'm making these examples to let you understand that no matter how bad a situation is, people in that situation still possess some level of power. The general perception of people in poor neighborhoods, people living in war, or someone in something is that they need a superman or a knight in shiny armor to come and rescue them. In 2007, I was here doing my graduate study, and I got a rude awakening. I went to teach the church that I affiliated with in Virginia, asked me to go and be the speaker for Sunday school, for the Easter, gave the Easter message to the Sunday school. And I went real dressed, dressed better than this, all in my sunshine. And I had all my beautiful African songs lined up that I would sing to these wonderful American children. And my niece and nephew, who's partly Arab, and my sister had come from France to visit. They were sitting there. And as I started to tell the story, a little boy, very chubby, stood up. Loser, go back to Africa. And someone tried to pull him down. Loser, go back to Africa. My nephew was raging. And I said to him, do you think I'm a loser? Yes. Why do you think so? He went on to explain. And then I said to him, explain part of my journey. But something happened in that room. The following Sunday, I came to church. There was this little boy standing. And I think he had been struggling with anger problems. And his parents were really afraid. And he came to me and said, Miss Lima, thank you. He said that you didn't get angry when he called you a loser. I promise you that I'm going to be a peaceful person. But what the lesson I learned was that as an African, as a survivor of civil war, as someone who have gone through everything a woman can go through, from domestic violence to this, to that, to the other, my continence and my is it demeanor should never be that of failure, that of pain. It should always be hold your shoulders up, walk with your head up high, and do something to change your situation. And if you're sitting in this room and you say, so usually after this, the first question is, how can I help? The reverse to that question is, is there something on this campus that needs to be changed? Is there something in some community outside of here that you can work with? Are you waiting 
for global citizens to come and help you build local peace? What are you doing? Because the world is not waiting. Chaos is not waiting. It's overtaking us every day. Pains and suffering is rising and rising every day. How can we change this world and make it a beautiful place? Are you still thinking individualistic? Because of all the stories I told in this room, it's a story of a group making a difference, not an individual. So that sense of community. If you are hungry, if you want a taste of freedom, if you want to see change, You need to keep walking. Thank you. I would like to ask you about the sex strike aspect of your activism, and I cringe with embarrassment as I do so, because I know that that's what the Western media has caught on to, uh, often frivolously or often with a sense of prurience. Uh, and I wondered whether it was, it's just a strategic uh, publicity hook for the media or whether it has any, had any substance to it. And I partly wonder that because it seems to me a trope that's often said about uh, other, other countries, non-American uh, countries, mm. non-Western countries, most recently about the Philippines, that that's how they do political activism. They do a, a sex strike. Well, ours was out of frustration. We had started the protest, and we didn't seem to, yes, we were getting men coming, we want to be a part, but because we felt like if we had involved the men and the boys to join the protest, they would have call it a military activity, subversive. We were nothing but toothless bulldogs in the eyes of the government. But then also what we didn't see was statements from men, you know, just kind of like denouncing the war. One day, I sat to the Muslim woman is the one with the craziest idea, honestly. Sometimes we wonder whether she's truly a Muslim. She said, you know what, let's do a sex strike to move our husbands into action, because they are bodies with the warlords. They are bodies with these individual, different people. We don't seem to be getting to them to really understand the drive behind what we do. The media took that completely out of context, and so it became a buzz. We failed miserably in the urban areas because one of the things we realized was that by the time we said sex strike and told the women this was one of our actions, a lot of them started coming with bruises and bruised eyes. That was one. In the rural area, the women were more strategic, and that's what I said. It's not about education. It's about how well you know your context. They called their husbands to meetings and said, according to biblical practices, when you are fasting, you are supposed to withhold yourself from the pleasures of this world. We want to fast for peace. It means sex is out. 
And until peace come, we will continue to fast. No one beat them. The husbands were there praying with them in the church every day. When we ended the protest in Monrovia, there was not a single man who came to appreciate his wife. When we went to central Liberia, Bonn County, to end the protest, it was amazing. At the end of the program, the woman, my Annie, said to me, and we have one last item. And I just see this chain of men marching, coming. Traditional men, but some had gifts. Some had flowers. And they came and called their wives up one by one to say, we appreciate you for the hard work for bringing peace. And then one of them leaned over to me and said, it's all about the sex. <laughs> but we were, they were successful than us in the urban areas. Yeah. You mentioned that there were high rates of uh, rape and sexual abuse in Liberia following the peace talks. And I was just wondering what sort of work was being done at a local level to um, curtail that and to work against it in the community. Well, right now, we, the, if you look at the statistics, it still shows that rape is high in Liberia. And the question we keep asking ourselves, is it really higher than before or is it because of the awareness that you must report rape that the reporting now is high? You know, so having said that, in 2000 and between 2003 to 2005, the female lawyers of Liberia had drafted a rape law. And Liberia is one of those, the only countries in West Africa with a rape law that is non-bailable. It's 12 to life. Now the Bar Association that is supposed to be helping us to really push this law forward, the men in the Bar Association has gotten up to say the law is barbaric. So they want to review the law and water it down. No one is saying rape is barbaric. You know, so, so that, is, that is the battle that we are currently fighting. But because of the reporting now of rape, we also have a special court to prosecute rape in Liberia. So the cases are not, you know, like waiting on the dockets. How successful that legal team has been, not very. Last year, they, they, they tried 23 cases, and I think they won only three. Three got thrown out, and they lost the rest. So we still have to beef it up, um, the work around it. But also, where in communities before, people would rape a girl, and if the man was not married, they would say, take him as your wife. Mothers are not compromising. So we have that kind of awareness going on. Don't do divine justice with rape. Because most of the time, parents were saying, I leave mine with God. But if you really, really listen to some of the stories, it's horrifying. You know, it still reflects where we came from. You can never forget the, the, the image of the war is always before us in the attitude of people and the things that happens on a daily basis. When you told your wonderful story about the voters' registration, I was thinking all the time, gee, how is she doing it with six children? So would you care to comment on that? 
Oh, that is my favorite part of the talk. <laughs> I think from the time they came into the world, they knew what I would be doing. So when it comes to my work, my kids are very supportive. But I also have, I, I'm a sucker when it comes to my kids. I spoil them a lot because um, we've been through a lot together. If you read my book, you would read about our struggles. Having said that, there are certain lines that you don't cross. You know, the, the Bible says a person without kind of like a, 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 a strong spirit or principles is like a house or city without walls. And so my son, when he was 15, he's now 18, and in, he's a sophomore in college year. No alcohol in my house. Not even in your body as you enter. Mm-hmm. And so the few times that he tried me, they have a nice way of calling when you give your child pepper in the U.S. They say saucing. I like that English. I sauced him very well. <laughs> there are times that he would come, you say, don't do this. Okay, I'll tell you one story. One night, he left. And quite recently, when he came back from the U.S., he brought his swagger home, you know, bringing his swagger to his mommy. And then he called me at work and said, you know, my friends, uh, you've managed to take the talk from here. And we want to go out. And I said, no. Stay home. You did it yesterday. You did it the day before. There's time to rest. I came home and they said, oh, he left. So I called him and said, oh, you know, we're out. And He came home, and I came out of my room, walked into their bedroom, and told my brother, take his suitcase, put it outside, lock my gate. And then he came, he's, he's, he's standing there because he dared not come to my door. So he's outside saying, why? I said, come. No. Why? Come. No. Why? I say, you go to wherever you want to be and not my house. So then I go in my room, and my brother, who I've taken care of since he was 10, he's 23 now, goes outside to keep company with my son. And I come back outside and call my 15-year-old Arthur and say, bring Diamond's suitcase, let him follow Nuku. And then I turn to the rest of them, anyone else, everyone go, no. <laughs> they stay out from 10 till 2 a.m. All I could hear was the slapping sound of the mosquitoes. <laughs> and then my partner called me because he was out of the country and said, you know what, please let them come in. I say, Kes, he said, yes. I say, if you were here, your suitcase would be out too. <laughs> So by 2 a.m., I come outside, open the gate, and you have to apologize to me. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it anymore. Come in. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it anymore. Come in. So they know where the love is there. Obviously, you can claim in my bed anytime you want anything that is in my power, I will give it to you. But when I say this, so even my two-year-old, 
We were at church the other day and she decided to try me. When I looked at her, I just looked. She climbed back into her stroller, sat down, and put her pacifier in her mouth. (laughs) After church, this woman came to me and I really didn't know that this woman was paying attention. She said, ma'am, I see you have control over your group. But we've established that. You know, we, we have good times, they, we, and they are not, my kids are not, they, I say, the typical African children. I like to talk funny stories about them, because we talk about rape, we talk about abuse, we talk about sex, which is not a typical African thing. So my mother is always saying to them, don't get pregnant, and don't do this, don't do that. My daughter, when she was 13, once said, no. I know why grandma is always talking about teenage pregnancy. But my dad always warned my mother, Lehman's children is not the typical African children. Leave these children alone. And then my mother asks, what do you mean? Say, grandma, you were a victim of teenage pregnancy. And then she goes, what, what, what? And she says, you were 16 when you had your first child. And then my father goes, I told you. Then my 10 year old at the time say, Ooh, Grandpa Nasty, you are a teenager and having sex. He said, You see, I told you. I wonder if you could come and talk to my grandchildren. <laughs> uh, many of the young people in this audience uh, plan, hopefully, at some time to do the kind of work you talk about. And many will go outside their own communities, travel abroad, and maybe go to African countries as well as elsewhere. Um, You were uh, very cautious uh, about the role of the United Nations, people parachuting in with their expertise. What advice would you give to people who want to do good in places that aren't really their own places? If you even think you have the solution, keep it to yourself and seek the counsel of people. You may just hear your solution in someone's voice. Anyone going, young people going into communities and think that you're going to change them, you've already failed before you get on a flight. Go into communities with a open mind Learn from local people. I am from Liberia. I never go into any community with that arrogance of I know. Because you will be setting yourself up immediately for failure. If you are going as a doctor and you think you know the solution to the problems of malaria, ask people. They could give you few more to add to what solutions you have. I'll tell you a secret. One of the things that I have seen in all of the post-conflict countries that I've worked in, as an African, going to, I was in Congo, travel, Kivu, Bukavu, Kinshasa, and none of those women came to me like a victim. None of them dwelt on the stories of their rape. Everybody wanted to show 
to their fellow sister how they have been sustaining their children and sustaining their communities in the midst of the violence that they live in. Flip it around. By the time the white people arrive, I've been raped. I've been abused because they figured you are up. That's the stories you want to hear. You travel to cry, so they will make you cry. Hmm? We sat in a room of Congolese women and I asked them, give me the five major issues that are affecting women in Congo today. Rape was number four. Political participation was number one. Economic empowerment was number two. Domestic violence was number three. And even at that, they qualified it. The rape you see is because we don't have women in high places to affect the change that needs to be done. Number two, if we were economically empowered, we will not be in the abusive relationships and we will know how to handle our issues. Every, Abby Disney, the producer of, executive producer of Pray the Devil Back to Hell, was the one who sponsored the trip. By the time they came in the room and saw the list, they were like, what? Because everyone expected rape to be number one because that is the global image of the Congolese women. In Kinshasa, one of them asks, where did they get that idea that rape is our major problem? Someone told me, if you don't say so, you don't get the aid. If you truly want to help people go like that, but if you go with, I come with money, money they shall get from you. I learned that when I was working with child soldiers, the first story they tell you is always a lie. The second is a lie. The third is a lie. By the fourth and fifth, they start to insert database of truth. By the time you reach to number 20, that's the real story. <laughs> so it is with people who have gone through difficulties. And because also the media never goes into any community and want to pick the story of how you survive, what positive things. They want to interview people that have been raped. I know once upon a time a press man asked me, have you been raped? Were you raped during the librarian? Well, I said no. He passed his mic over my head. So the easiest thing for anyone who's looking for media attention, who's looking for aid, who's looking for this, who's looking for that, is to say, I was raped. And I tell you another story. It was the similar situation of people across who wanted to be migrants, immigrants after war. People tell the stories of every time they went to the U.S. consulate and told the truth, they were denied. When they went and told a sad story of imaginary rape, 
the counselor cried and granted them their papers. Don't set yourself up for failure. Don't go expecting people to give you. People will read you, read your talk, and give you what they think you want to hear. One guy I met who's an American, just left Liberia. He says Liberia is the only country that he knows where an expatriate will be walking in the street with money sticking out of his pocket and a child will come, white man, put your money back in your pocket. But it's because he went with the attitude of learning. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.